The BBC is always a subject of scrutiny, and rightly so. It's a public service broadcaster. But it feels like more than ever our broadcasters are accused of bias and spin, and the subject also of wild conspiracy theories. Hello, Prime Minister. I'd just like to ask you, how important is it for someone in your position of power to always tell the truth? I think it's, I think it's absolutely vital. Have they brought these attacks upon themselves? For those at the top of our broadcast media, what's the right response to this polarised political landscape? And can they win back the growing minority who have lost trust not just in politicians, but in the media too? We must find courage in this time of crisis. And most of all, we must unite to use the power of television to protect democracy because it is being seriously undermined. Welcome back to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the big divides in our politics and our culture and how to fix them. I'm Ian Leslie. And I'm Matthew Taylor. This week, are our broadcasters fit for purpose in a polarised world? I went along tonight. I wanted to take part in the debate on the climate emergency. It's one of the biggest issues facing the country. I talked to the editor of Channel 4 News and he said no. Later in the podcast, we'll be speaking to the head of news and current affairs at Channel 4, Dorothy Byrne, who made a splash earlier this summer at the Edinburgh TV Festival, where she gave a rather spicy McTaggart lecture about politicians' trust and lies. We are also going to ask Dorothy about uh, a very recent controversy at Channel 4 where they empty-chaired Boris Johnson uh, and he threatened to review their broadcasting licence. It's all been very uh, handbags at dawn. But before that, it's time for our full disclosure segment where we set out our thinking on this episode's topic. I think handbags at dawn may be challenged as a metaphor slightly later in this conversation, Ian, but I don't know, I could be completely wrong about that. Um, We're going to be talking to Dorothy Nimmit, but actually both of us have been pontificating about these kind of issues in the last few days. So just very quickly, so that we can situate ourselves, and you have written something about how we're kind of slightly unfair on politicians in elections. We expect them to be experts. You're not as enamoured by Andrew Neil as the kind of beacon of truth in our nation as some people are. So tell us more. The column was uh, about how did our politicians get so stupid? <laughs> you know, at least ha- how did a-, a lot of them get in the position where they are saying and-, and doing stupid things? Because they don't start out as stupid. I mean, and, and some of them start out, you know, they go into politics uh, sort of replete with incredible kind of academic credentials and and you know Boris Johnson speaks several languages these are not like you know thick people they're they're bright people who over time sort of dim their own brains either because they are uh, ideologues um, if you look at John Redwood, right, for instance, you know this guy was incredibly clever. He was a fellow of All Souls, which is the, the Oxford College for you know for people who are too clever to go to Oxford. It's for academic stars, and he was a fellow. And now look at him; he's he's 
tweeting stuff about, you know, why can't Britain be, be self-sufficient in vegetables? Well, you know, maybe it can if you turn the whole country in, into an allotment. But, you know, every day he says something similarly kind of dim, right? You say, well, this is a guy who's got such a rigidly ideological mind that he sort of made himself stupid. And this is the point. You can make yourself stupid either because you're an ideologue or because you're seeking to please an audience so much you, you just say anything they want to hear. And this is more, this is Boris Johnson's problem. I don't think Johnson is an ideologue. But because he is so sort of enthralled to saying whatever the next audience needs to hear, he's just forgotten how to think for himself. And it's not just about Johnson or, or Redwood. This is just a problem for our politics as a whole. We've rigged the game to, to make our politicians stupid. Because what makes you stupid? Not being able to admit doubt or uncertainty. Not being able to think about your own beliefs. We always expect politicians to project this incredible confidence and, and certainty. They do it and they do it at the expense of thinking and they, they become dim. So let me identify the continuity in your thought, uh, Ian, which is it seems to me that does link to your critique of Andrew Neil. Because I think one of the things you said when you had watched the interview with Jeremy Corbyn was that although it was a very powerful and effective interview, it really wasn't reasonable that Jeremy Corbyn was at no able, no stage able to elaborate upon his ideas, to explain why he believed anything at all. He just spent the entire interview defending himself from the very specific charges being laid down. So, for example, he wasn't able to explain why it was he thought the so-called waspy women should get their money. He just had to explain why, how he was going to pay for it. So this links, doesn't it? Because what's yeah, the yeah. point of being intelligent if you're never going to get the chance to be able to elaborate upon your ideas in relation to the mass media? It does. And by the way, I, you know, I should preface this by saying I'm a huge fan of, of Andrew Neil um, and as an interviewer and not a huge fan of, of Jeremy Corbyn. So I, I'm kind of like batting for the other side here. And, and generally, I thought that was a, a powerful interview. But there were moments there where I was like, well, he should be allowed to explain what, what his policy is be before we just get into a debate about the numbers, because otherwise this is just a meaningless debate for most most people. And on, on the other point, you know, on, on terrorism, Neil made it about whether or not he should, he, he'll take out the, the, you know, the head of a terrorist network, right? It's just like in the context of, of foreign policy and how you fight terrorism, actually that's a, a kind of trivial point. It's really just about posturing. And you, you're just demanding that the politician adopt a certain posture, a certain, a certain stance or not. That is the kind of thing that makes our politics stupid. So Dorothy's been, I'm watching, she's writing a lot of notes. So I think there may be some rebuttal of this analysis in a moment. But you're also going to ask me, Ian, about my intelligent thoughts. I am. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Because um, you wrote a very interesting blog about, about the, the, uh, the ITV debate, which you said was more boring, perhaps, than, than it needed to be. Yeah, so I started my blog by saying that last week's TV contained a, a behind-the-sofa moment and a fall-asleep-on-the-sofa moment, the first relating to the royal family. What struck me about the ITV debate was actually, in contrast to Andrew Neil, actually, it was quite open-ended. I think they were allowed to make a statement at the end, maybe at the beginning as well, I don't know, but there were opportunities to yeah. speak at some length. It wasn't nearly as kind of... Constricted. In, in, constricted, right? So... I was just thinking back to when I used to advise politicians, because I did used to advise politicians for uh, question time, any yes. questions and things like that. And what I would have done, and the people that I admired and worked with, people like Esther Campbell, Philip Gould, Peter Madison maybe, would have said, where is our weakness? And how can we use this interview to address our weakness? This is our opportunity. So had I been advising Jeremy Corbyn, I would have said at some stage, say something like, you know, the reason I fight for the NHS and social justice is because I'm a socialist. But more than that, it's because I'm a patriot. It's because Britain is a country that should be proud of its institutions and proud of its commitment to fairness. So for me, this is all about standing up for British values. That would have got people sitting up a bit. Well, I'm not expecting yeah. that from Jeremy Corbyn. And if I'd been Boris, I would at some point have said, look, 
I know some people think I've got a colourful past. I've sometimes been a bit careless in my words, and I regret that. But I want you to know that from the bottom of my heart, I want to provide service to this country. You know, I am a public servant first and foremost. Now, neither of them took any opportunity to say things which might have addressed the respectively the view that one's a socialist ideologue and the other one, the view of the other one's just a kind of self-seeking rogue. Now, it might have seemed, and this I'll finish my argument, it might seem this is unrealistic that they would do this. But I remember 2005, and Dorothy probably remembers 2005, and the masochism strategy. We realised in 2005 that Tony Blair was probably going to beat Michael Howard, but people were so angry with Blair because of Iraq, because of student fees, and because he'd just been in power a long time. And if people felt that voting for Blair meant a kind of vote of confidence in him, they weren't going to do it because they were so pissed off. So the masochism strategy involves Tony spending two or three months on and off, going into studios and being shouted at. And he didn't like it, and none of us around him particularly liked it, but it did the job because by the end of that campaign, people felt he had been confronted on Iraq, on Jewish and Jews. given a things. clip around the head. Yeah. And like, OK, all right. So it didn't look as though if he won the election, he'd sailed smoothly through. Yeah. Now, it wasn't a great and result. It really didn't. It wasn't a great result in 2005, but, but still Labour finished it well. So I finished off by saying, well, why? Why is it that these politicians did not use this opportunity? And I come down to three views. Really. One is brittleness. Maybe they're just too brittle because you know, even, even in a self-serving way, to admit your weaknesses and address them, it requires a certain amount of self-confidence. Maybe they're just too brittle to do it. Secondly, maybe the people around them haven't got the courage to say to them, you know, you've got a weakness here. You've got a problem here. You kind of need to address it. And then thirdly, which I think is probably the reason, because neither of them are actually interested in reaching out to anyone at all. The, but they the, have to be interested in it. And this is what I don't understand. Well, I, Boris, no, Boris doesn't need to be to, 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 to win. Corbyn, no, Corbyn does, but sure ideology doesn't seem... Now, our producer is waving at us and looking anxious because yeah. he's spent all week getting an all-star guest in and now we're wittering on. Yeah. So we'll just use those interventions as background to the main business of the programme. Joining us in the studio is Dorothy Byrne, Head of News and Current Affairs at Channel 4 and author of a new book called Trust Me, I'm Not a Politician – a simple guide to saving democracy, and which can be read on a single long tube journey. Yeah, and it's I, re- a I recommend it. Short book. I'm a huge fan of short books, and it's based on Dorothy's McTaggart lecture, which she gave at this year's Edinburgh TV Festival, which created news itself because um, it's just a, a really brilliant and cutting and fascinating speech about news and and journalism and politics. Dorothy, in your in your speech, you said people don't look to to TV for big ideas anymore, but to podcasts instead. So we're really glad to have you here on, on our big idea platform, <laughs> uh, polarized. And we want to get into the the themes of the book and, and some of these kind of wider themes about polarization. But we really should ask you about what happened yesterday. Um, and, and if I'll just summarize, and last night Boris Johnson and and Nigel Farage declined to participate in the Channel Four News climate debate and you empty chaired them and replaced them with ice sculptures and and what happened rather attractive ice sculptures I thought. The, yeah. they're very stylish and they melted during the programme I, I thought aesthetically it was better than the tub of lard that once replaced Roy Hattersley on Have I Got News For You although that tub of lard was a classic wasn't it <laughs> well it was a debate for party leaders there were huge calls, there have been huge calls for a broadcaster to hold a climate debate. So we held one. 
I think it was disappointing that two leaders didn't want to come on. Michael Gove turned up and said, can I come on? But he is not the leader of his party. So we said, no, you can't. And and yeah. it was a shame that we didn't hear directly from the Conservatives, although we did our best to represent their views. And I hope that they will come on Channel 4 News another time. I mean, we've invited Michael Gove to come on another time. And and just to be clear, why... Did you? Uh, why didn't you accept Michael Gove's offer to to take up? Because he wasn't a leader, and it was an event for leaders. We said the same thing to the SNP, who initially offered Ian Blackford because they thought that Nicola Sturgeon might not be able to get there on time. But we said, you know, people want to hear from the leaders, and I think that that was the right decision. Going back to you talking about people being stupid or politicians coming across as stupid, I think in the debate last night, they were well informed, actually. Yeah, I watched some of it. It was good. Stanley Johnson said to me, they were very well informed. They knew a lot. I think that they were impressive. And that, that doesn't mean that I don't think that Nigel Farage wouldn't have been impressive with his great knowledge of climate change had he decided to come and maybe he'll come on Channel 4 News and give us all his great knowledge of climate change another time. Going back into 2005 I'm pretty sure that Tony was challenged, Tony Blair was challenged to do a debate then and he just said no because up until the debate started to become a conventional thing, if you were ahead you didn't have a debate because there was only downside not much upside. Now, this year there was the head-to-head ITV debate. Very disappointing, but nevertheless it took place. Then you had the kind of relay baton BBC version where they were all interviewed, but in front of a you know live audience. Andrew Neil, the big issue now is whether or not Boris Johnson will do Andrew Neil. Then you had your climate change one. When does this kind of inflation of expectations that leaders must respond to broadcasters' demands and that if they don't, somehow they've failed some kind of public test? This could grow and grow and grow, couldn't it? You know, why isn't every leader appearing on Match of the Day or whatever? You know. Well, I think it's right that broadcasters should say you should come on TV And I actually think it would be good for politicians if they did come on TV more and they came on at length. You were criticising the Andrew Neil interview. I think one issue may have been, in fact, that it was only half an hour Mm. and he's trying to cover all the policies. And in the past, politicians regularly did long interviews, 45-minute interviews, one-hour interviews. And I think we need more of those. But politicians won't put themselves up for them anymore. Also, we used to have press conferences in the morning during elections in which leaders would be questioned in some detail about their policies. You criticised the ITV debate and... I think one issue there was that each of them just kept saying their best point. You know, for one it was get Brexit done, for the other it was save the NHS. And by the end, this isn't a criticism of ITV, but I felt I didn't really hear very much. That was an hour of TV in which two men just kept repeating what they thought were their best messages. So politicians have come to think that that's good for them and they will complain about the soundbite, but they are the ones 
who give the sound bite. Theresa May was famous for saying hardly anything at all when she was interviewed. I mean, for the book, I interviewed quite a number of BBC people, and one of them said interviewing Theresa May was completely pointless because she never said anything at all. Well, look what that did for Theresa May. Politicians have got to recognise trust that the people of Britain have in them is going lower and lower. So it was about 21% before the referendum debate. The Channel 5 survey of 2,000 voters found it was now 9%. It will be going into negative if politicians keep lying and not saying anything. What do we agree? The public is disenchanted, angry, and they're not getting served well by the system. If we had Alistair Campbell in the room, he would say, absolutely agree, and it's 90% the fault of the media. And now you're in the room, and I'm paraphrasing you when I suggest that you're saying 90% of the problems lies with the politicians. I think for the public, they would generally say it was a kind of folie deux that both sides had contributed to this Would they, would they actually use the phrase folie deux? Well, my, the my, Ian, my friends would, let's yeah. be frank. You do not want to recognise no, that I there's think, a kind of no, dynamic here? some of... Uh, I think the first issue, style of questioning that is incredibly aggressive and in which you as a listener or a viewer are going, for God's sake, let that man speak. Mm -hmm. I think on the whole, we've moved away from that very aggressive questioning and that form of questioning where you know it's a game for the journalist, that they sat all day, and I know that this did used to happen, people would sit all day and try to work out how they could trick a politician. Isn't that the Andrew Neil style? No, I think his style is slightly different. That style of just trying to trick you, viewers said it was a turn-off. I mean, they really did complain about it a lot, and so... People have stopped doing that. And if you look at the way, say, that Emily Maitlis or Emma Barner interview, it's different to the way Jeremy Paxman interviewed. I think what Andrew Neil does is he works out what your weak points are and he goes for them. Mm. If it was a longer interview... You know, ideally, you would have an hour with each politician, wouldn't you, in which you would be able to press him on his weak points, but you would also let him talk about what he thought were his best and most interesting policies that would win over the public. At the moment, I feel that all the parties have got loads of policies, but I've never really heard them unpacked. And that's what I quite liked about the debate last night, that it was about one subject. Mm -hmm. So it was quite refreshing to hear politicians talk about biodiversity. Mm. Jeremy Corbyn talked about lavender. I mean, we don't get much of that. And we did actually represent the views on biodiversity of the Conservative Party. But most people in this election campaign wouldn't even know that the parties, other than maybe the Green Party, had a policy on biodiversity because all they ever hear is the politicians banging on about the same few policies. 
And they go out all day shaking people's hands, going into schools. I think it must be a bit frightening for children, politicians turning <laughs> up and sitting next to them at the desk. They just, on the whole, answer just a few questions from a group of journalists so we don't learn anything about them. And I think if you went out and you asked people what are the policies on quite a wide range of subjects, people just wouldn't know. And they're voting for the politician they dislike the least. Okay. Do you think, sorry, just very quickly, but before he comes back in, but I know you would never do this. It would, but, but if you were advising either Jeremy or any of the politicians, because because Andrew Neil Mullard, Joe Swinson, he Mullard, Sturgeon. Nicola Sturgeon, is there any way that you could have advised any of those politicians to go on the Andrew Neil program and end up doing well? Is there a way of doing it, given the half an hour format and given his approach? Is is it just an, it's something you have to enjoy? Is there a way to come out of that with people thinking, oh, the politician did quite well? Well, sometimes. If you're a politician, you can not answer the aggression given to you with aggression. You can answer in a really calm way and say, to me, that isn't the relevant question. I'll answer it as much as you want, but this is the key point that you're missing. So I think... Maybe you could train them to not just go in on the defensive. So you've got one person going in on the attack and the other one just being defensive. And they should be confident about their policies. They should believe in their policies. They should be clear about their policies as well, right? I mean, often what he's doing is... He's asking them to be clear about things they don't want to be clear about. If you go into an interview with an engineer, you should be absolutely clear about everything. And like you say, you should be confident. If you're confident enough to be prime minister, you should be confident enough to be interviewed by Andrew Neil. Yeah, if your policy falls apart because Andrew Neil asked you a question about it, maybe you need a different policy. Exactly. So or, poli- uh, do, we, do we all think politicians are getting worse? Because I always think it's just a sign of ageing that you look back on any previous generation and think they're more impressive. But I, I look back on the no, kind of likes of David Blunkett or John Reid or even Margaret Beckett, and their capacity to deal with the difficult John Humphreys interview was just completely beyond the present generation. They were able to kind of deal with it, try and move it on. Sometimes they were flat-batting it, but you never felt they were kind of cowering in the corner, which is what it felt a bit like no, watching... The, the, the craft yeah. skills of the job seem to be... Uh, have well, got a lot worse. Think of- I think that a number of politicians in the past went into interviews determined to answer the question and confident about their policies, whatever I might think about it. And now they go in scared and they talk about how unpleasant it is to be interviewed. Well, Margaret Thatcher, you often felt really enjoyed being interviewed. Mm. And I think one of the really interesting things in that terrific BBC series on Thatcher was looking at all the interviews that she did. Agreed. And when we did Maggie and Me, a programme for Channel 4, for our form of obituary for Margaret Thatcher, we showed lots of the interviews that Margaret Thatcher did with Jon Snow. And you could see that she really enjoyed doing them. There was a real conversation going on 
we need to get back to that. But in order to get back to that, they've got to come on and do long interviews. And they've just got out of doing that. And all they do is act defensive so that I don't hear as a listener what their policies were. And that's not the fault of the interviewer. It might sometimes be, but the actual politician isn't expressing their policies. Totally agree. And, and you know, they should do it for their own sake because I, I think if you have to prepare for these interviews and you practice at them, you're just going to get better at them. You're actually going to get better at thinking through your policy issues as well. So by evading them, they're just, well, they're making themselves... Stupid to return to my original theme. Um, okay, so so Dorothy, let's talk about your, your your lecture and your and your book. Can you fill us in on the background on the lecture and and how it came about, and then the reaction to it, and how and why that turned into a book? I literally was dancing at the Hebridean Celtic Music Festival on a Friday night when I got the phone call asking me to do it, and because I have to ring people late and ask them to do interviews when somebody's dropped out. Yeah. I realised, oh, somebody's dropped out. So you said that in that... Is it true that someone had dropped out? And if, yes, yes. Who and was I it? Said, I said, oh, you're desperate, aren't you? <laughs> and they went, no, 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 we're not desperate. I said, you ring me on a Friday <laughs> night while I'm on holiday. How long before you're the desperate. event was this? Maybe it was about three weeks or something yeah. like that. My, my, my much less equivalent list, Dorothy, is I get phone calls from Newsnight at five o'clock on a Friday because everybody they want to interview has left London. So, you know, and I, when I get a phone call, and that's the only time Newsnight ever phoned me at five o'clock on a Friday. And do you go on? No. Oh, well, I, I went <laughs> I've got on. a life to live. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. And what was interesting is that they normally have somebody famous like James Murdoch. So I had assumed they would have given really staggeringly good lectures but the organisers sent me all their lectures and nearly all of them were really seriously dull because they'd (laughs) all been written by PR men so nobody had any expectation at all of my lecture (laughs) but what was unusual about it was I actually wrote it myself. They also sent me the list of the revered people who had given it previously and the very nice woman said to me you may wish to refer to some of them. People often do. Well, when I looked at the (laughs) list, I thought I will want to refer to them, but not perhaps quite as you think. I mean, Kevin Spacey, can you imagine how I might want to refer to him? James Murdoch, who had actually given a really dull lecture, obviously, since the time that he'd given the lecture in which he talked about trust and respect and how newspaper readers were respected etc i give him short shrift um and then so then then i thought well since i'm the last person they would have thought of i can just say whatever i like i met james murdoch once and he patronized and dismissed me hey james now i patronize and dismiss you Elsewhere on the list, I spotted (laughs) one name among my predecessors who has not yet had the comeuppance he deserves for his assaults on women. That's one of the things about being an old lady. You gather a lot of information over the years. To men who have behaved badly, I say this, you know who you are, and so do I. (laughs) 
I've shared that lecture, Dorothy, with so many people. I think the only thing I'd say about the lecture is it is so brilliant, the first kind of few minutes of it. It's so funny, so shocking. The danger is that the more, in a sense, the more substantive part, which is the second half about what we're talking about today, which is politicians not appearing on TV and the relationship between media and politicians, almost got lost a little bit because the first part of it was so kind of swashbuckling. And But the book is more, it seems to me, about, about that the issue. The book is it? more... Th- Serious, yes. Although yeah. it does have some jokes in it. So, so what's the relationship between the speech and the book? I also had given a major speech in at Manchester University, the alumna speech, I suppose I should say. I talked there about politics. So it's both the speeches and also quite a number of my related thoughts and updating it. Yeah, yeah. The, the kind of conversations you've had and, and the reaction that you had to... Uh, to the McTaggart lecture in particular, were you surprised by it or or were there things that you agreed with, disagreed with and and did that affect your thinking? Well, I think what's been interesting is the extent to which the issue of trust in politicians has been such a major issue in this election and I think I showed great foresight, actually. Uh, And one of the things that I criticised was politicians saying misleading things in order to win a few votes and how detrimental that is to confidence in democracy. I had hoped in this election that politicians might listen to me, but we've had a number of flagrant examples of misleading things being said. Are politicians saying more misleading things? Are they more dishonest? Because obviously people will say, well, you know, politicians have always misled people in, in various ways. We're just sort of blowing this up in, into a controversy where, where you know, this is just the kind of way people have done politics for hundreds of years. Um, what, what would you say to that? And what have you noticed about the, the way that the political discourse I has changed? I think that politicians are more dishonest quite regularly and that when they're caught out, they don't seem to be embarrassed. The most interesting thing about the ITV debate, and a really shocking thing, was the number of times that the audience laughed with derision. And if I were any politician, I would look at that debate and feel really worried. I mean, I've been in TV for decades. I've been involved in lots of debates and interviews. I have never heard a debate in which, on quite a number of occasions, the audience just laughed so that the politician said something and it happened to both Corbyn and to Johnson and the reaction of the audience wasn't to clap or to boo, it was just to laugh. They just clearly didn't believe them at all. And that is really worrying. Whoever wins the election, we've got an electorate who sort of despise politicians and think they're a bit of a joke. It upsets me when politicians are found to have lied. Lots of people now just go, well, what do you expect? And funnily enough, journalists are more outraged by politicians lying than members of the public are. Mm. Well, right, yeah. Can, can we widen the lens to your role as 
in commissioning for for Channel Four, which you've done for a very long time, and and commissioned some you know incredibly powerful, including and successful one programs, that you made, including yes. the single one, the single one that I made many years ago. Uh, what what is the relationship of of the media to the broader question of polarisation in in society? Because let's face it, what is interesting to the media is is the extremes, the kind of soggy centre, the conventional is not of great interest. Sometimes it feels as though it's the media, in part, who are driving polarisation because of the fact that they're fascinated by extremes, yes, extremes of opinion, extremes of behaviour. Uh, in you... general, that is a justified criticism. But if the media just keep making programmes about extremes, viewers start to turn off. You know, I mean, the last programme that I saw about some ghastly racist, actually hardly anybody watched it because it was yet another programme about a ghastly racist <laughs> and there have been quite a few of those. That, was um, <laughs> that would, might be quite a good name for a programme. Um, in fact, people want to see their own lives reflected and you'll get a lot of viewers and listeners if you make a programme that taps into something that people are really concerned about. But it's more of a challenge to sell it. You know, tonight, a programme about your life doesn't sound grippingly interesting. But I've done a lot of programmes about pensions over the years. They always rate well. I've done a lot of programmes about housing. They always rate well. Programmes about homelessness rate well programmes about poverty rate well. People really care about each other. We've got a programme coming up next week about poor children. It would be impossible to watch that programme about children living in poverty now and not really care about them. And we point out there are millions of children living in poverty. It's our duty to describe people's lives back to themselves. But I also think we have a duty at the present time to show people each other better. I think a lot mm. of Southern English journalists, quite posh, treated Brexit voting people in the north of England in a really disdainful way. They didn't really listen to them properly. I mean, in the book, I say that if I lived in Sunderland, I would feel that I was treated like Neanderthal man by a number of news providers. And I did think, oh, my God, not another programme coming from Sunderland. Everybody seemed to just choose Sunderland. And interestingly, a lot of those journalists thought people in Sunderland were an extreme, you know, mm. Brexit voting. And guess what? It turned out they weren't. They were the 52%. Mm. OK, so uh, we want to talk a bit about objectivity in the news as well. So there's there's a kind of common criticism of Channel 4 News, which is that it's left of centre and kind of remain in, in its sympathies and that it's not as sort of neutral or objective as it, as it should be. Do you, do you think that's... Do you think there's any truth and the fact that? that you call Boris Johnson a liar as well has been kind of used in that debate to say, well, doesn't that suggest that it's impossible for you to be objective? I've said many other politicians lie too, we don't have to be completely objective or neutral. Right. I should just make that clear. Ofcom regulations say you have to be duly impartial. That means 
you can decide what weight you ought to give to different arguments. I think one reason that people wrongly say that is that we have a different agenda to some other news programmes and that we don't allow British politicians necessarily to decide what our agenda should be. About a third of what we do is international news and that isn't a third of what British politicians talk about. And I think that one thing that happens is that journalists and politicians follow each other in talking about the same thing when actually we should maybe all be talking about something else. So that makes people think, some people think perhaps, that we are liberal left, but it's just we're talking about some other subjects that the more mainstream are not talking about. I've never worked at the BBC. One of my close friends and colleagues who worked there for years said that when he was there, they used to compare each other's running orders and that he always felt he'd got his running order right if it was the same as the running order of one of the other television news programmes. Hmm. Whereas every now and then I say to Channel 4 News, your news last night was a bit similar to everybody else's news. <laughs> Hang on, I don't mean that you have to start with Palestine every night, but we're there to be different. Yeah. And I think if you're different, people criticise you. Yeah, I'm really interested in your point about television being more about bringing people together a bit. It's quite interesting that the same has happened in advertising. So, you know, 15 years ago in advertising, it was all about, you know, because you're worth it or, you know, it was all about the individual. And now not a lot of advertising is much more communitarian. It's trying to emphasise that lots of different types of people use the product or that this restaurant or whatever brings people together or whatever. So that that's interesting and a positive sign in society, and possibly a reflection of fears about the kind of fears about polarization. Another aspect is the kind of notion of solutions journalism, which is kind of quite big in the BBC at the moment. I'm just doing a little radio series using design principles to try and solve the problem, well, to develop solutions to the problem of debt in Barking and Dagenham. Do you, what do you think of the idea of, of journalism that's more around, less about problems and more about solutions? I think it's good to not leave people weeping hopelessly at the end of all your programmes because <laughs> they won't necessarily turn on to the next one. But we do have to be a bit careful. So if you say, if you stop using plastic bags, it's OK, the planet will be fine, that literally isn't true. We could all stop using plastic bags so no whale would ever be found with a plastic bag and we could still be going to hell in the handcart. So r real solutions, for example, to climate change are big, dramatic, difficult solutions. They're about saying to people, if you really want this to change, you will have to dramatically change your life. And it's also about, of course, getting politicians to give people that message. And for years, politicians didn't want to tell people the horrible fact that being green wasn't something nice. I mean, it is nice, but it's also something very difficult. So we, I think we just have to be a bit careful 
about not pretending that there are simple solutions to things, but there are solutions to a lot of things, like gambling, opioids. There are lots of potential answers to these mm. problems. Homelessness as well, you know, the, not just a thing that has to happen. You know, things can be done about it. And... But it's also complex. And actually yes. Channel 4 did a very good series in which a man went and lived undercover as a homeless person. That's been done many times. But this series was really interesting because he identified a group of people who he realised their way of life living on the streets was, for complex reasons, better for them than going to live in a horrible hostel. And it made you realise getting those people mm. off the streets, which is key, is going to be difficult because they don't want to be controlled by society. Final question, Dorothy. It, it must be quite interesting for you because, you know, I, I knew about you because... I once made a programme for you and obviously within the industry you've got an incredible reputation but now you're a public figure. It's interesting talking about, well, could the RSA or somebody else bring politicians and the media together after the election and say, what can we do about this? How, how does it feel to be a public figure in the way you are now and, and possibly have these kinds of expectations now lying on your shoulders that you're not, you're going to be someone who is actually going to maybe bring people together, maybe have uh, solutions. Is that, is that something you're comfortable with, you enjoy? Well, I don't think I'm really a public figure. Well, you're on Polarised, so you yeah, are yeah, now. So you're I, on so Polarised, you've got a best-selling yeah, book. Yeah, well, millions of people. <laughs> millions of people after today will be. Millions of people have watched your, your, your lecture. I shouldn't think it's millions. But I think well, you know, if people were talking... So just well, say, if you were yeah, talking about well, an RSA yeah, event, talk about what I, you're talking about, I would immediately think, oh, I must bring Dorothy Byrne in because she's someone who's thought deeply about oh, this. She wants to change the world. Nice. So mini-celebrity is nice because people have said really nice things to me and hardly anybody has said anything horrible. One of the things that's been really good is I talked about the menopause. Lots of women said, oh, I've never heard a woman on a public platform talk about the menopause. And Channel 4 has just introduced the first menopause policy in any UK broadcaster. Now, there's a a solution, not to the whole of the menopause, but to, you know, that's something really good that has come out of it. People that I used to work with at Granada have got in touch with me to tell me about the terrible racism that they suffered. And as a result of that, there's been discussion about racism in TV that there wasn't. And young women have got in touch with me to say... I've been assaulted too, and it was great for me that a woman talked about being assaulted. Not many politicians have got in touch with me to say I'm going to be a good man from now on. <laughs> but some have said, I've read your book, and it's very good the way you talk about other politicians. <laughs> Dorothy, thank you so much for joining us. Your book, Trust Me, I'm Not a Politician, is available from all good bookstores. It is, in fact, I know people say this all the time, and it's not true, but it is a really good stocking filler. I would say it's a perfect yes. uh, thing to thank open on Christmas much. Day morning and to read before you plunge into Christmas Day. So thank you so much for joining us. Ian, I think that's it. I just have to end by asking you, uh, everyone thinks the Conservatives are going to get majority of about 40, 50, 60. You're just interested. Are you going to smash the consensus or is that kind of more or less where you are? Uh, I'm not going to do prediction. I think everyone sh should stop predicting the election result and just wait until it happens. It's completely pointless.
Very good. Good ethical stance. <laughs> uh, that's it for this episode of Polarise. We'll be back in two weeks' time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do tell someone about it. We'd really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Polarise was presented by Matthew Taylor and by Ian Leslie. The producer for the very last time was James Shield, who has been responsible for all our episodes of Polarised thus far. You've never heard his voice and you're going to hear it now. So if you want to say goodbye, James, just say goodbye. Oh, goodbye, and thanks for listening. And it's been really good to work with both of you. Thank you, James. In the studio, we have Craig Templeton-Smith, who is going to be trying to pick up where James left off, filling those big shoes. So welcome to you, Craig, and uh, we'll see you uh, the next programme. Hopefully uh, you'll be listening to Polarised was brought to you by the RSA. Thank you.